Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 1. This is focused on the vision, which is really the second half of chapter 1. And you know, last time, uh, well, two times ago, we looked at the setting of the vision, the, you know, the uh, circumstances around the vision being received by John itself on the island of Patmos. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday, on the island called Patmos. And that was the paragraph in verses 9 through 11. And then the paragraph in verses 12 to 16, we talked about last time, and that gives us the details or the actual um, specifics of the vision itself. Um, that's his record, John's record of the vision. And in fact, if I could go to that screen, that helps summarize it even better than me describing it. We have three paragraphs that entail the vision that John receives in chapter 1. And the first one I've labeled the setting, the second one the specifics, and then the one that we come to today, which is the side effects or you could just say the effects, the results. What was the impact upon John particularly and all of us as believers? But what was the response we see in John to the vision itself? And remember, God gave John this vision. This is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ given to John by Christ himself and it's a vision of Christ in His risen, glorious majesty. It's the glorified Christ. Christ in heaven, in the heavenly temple, wandering among His churches, in the middle of His churches, the seven golden lampstands, and exhibiting symbolic traits or maybe even literal physical traits of a resurrected physical body yet glorified with full deity. And that's what we saw again last time. One like a son of man, clothed in a priestly robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, as again priestly garments. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, the searching eyes that discern all truth. His feet of judgment were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters like the rushing of waterfalls or breaking of the waves on the rocks and in his right hand he held the seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its noonday stream that's the vision and as David Platt said this may possibly be the most majestic portrait of Jesus ever penned. Um, the Bible is full of many hymns, many majestic passages about the glory of Christ, but none is any greater than this. And you know, remember, as we see Christ, this isn't just trivia. This isn't just facts about Christ in a heavenly vision. As it relates to us, as we behold our God, what should happen to us? We should be changed. We should be transformed. Uh, as in 1 John chapter 3, 
We become more like him as we progressively see him as he is. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, just as from the Lord to Spirit. So the point of a vision is not just uh, trivia, not just prophecy. And, and by the way, no prophecy is trivia. But I'm just saying the way the world approaches it, sometimes it seems trivial. But it's certainly not trivial, number one. But number two, even more dramatic for our own lives is that as we behold who Christ is, it should change us. So, again, just to review, uh, I know you can't read that, but this is to the seven letters, the seven churches in Asia Minor, which are on the southwest corner of Turkey. And um, we come to what, again, I have entitled the side effects. Let's read the paragraph, and then we'll get into it. So starting with verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, here is a, here is an, another little clip. And again, if you weren't here last time, I apologize because it's a little bit cheesy. It's not the best movie ever made by any means, but if it was, it wouldn't be free on YouTube. And But uh, Richard Harris is playing the Apostle John, and this is another little clip that shows the vision itself and then John's response to it. And again, uh, homework for discernment here is compare what you see with what the Bible says. And obviously, even though hopefully the visual helps spark imagination, don't let that overrule the truth of God, who is the ultimate revelator.
Christ am the last, and he that lives. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore, and have power over death and hell. Write the things I will show you. They are messages for all churches. Come, I will show you things which must be hereafter. Okay, so this is a vision. John's received it. What are the effects? What's the side effects? What's John's response? Look at verse 17. What's the very first thing we see? Huh? He fell at his feet. All right, not to be punny, but he was literally slain in the spirit. You know, he was in the spirit on Lord's Day and he was slain. He fell at his feet as a dead man. Well, notice that being slain in the spirit is anything but fun, right? I mean, I'm not saying that it's painful, but it's not a giddy, silly thing by any means. This is serious business. And, you know, don't we all, on a very sober note, don't we all desire to encounter the living God? Don't we all, I mean, isn't that what we want, especially when we go through the struggles and trials of life? Is I can remember uh, some of our toughest times, and Debbie, we were, we were what, what bothered or what strained us the most was we wanted to know that God heard us and cared. We wanted to know that God was there with us experiencing what we were experiencing. So you want a, a, a real encounter with the living God. You want to see Him as who He is and feel His presence and experience His touch. So... But I, I want us to think about in American Western Christianity when people say they want to encounter with God. They want to see God. They want a vision of God. They want to hear from God. What's more than likely the kind of thing they're talking about? I mean, do they want to see this God? They, they want a need man. Yeah. They want, yes, they want the gift rather than the giver. And, and I'm there too now. I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm guilty of being the same way. Um, and yet, experiencing the risen Christ is overwhelming to the point that our needs don't matter. I mean, John was on the island of Patmos in a penal colony. He was a prisoner. He'd been busting rocks all day. He's probably starving. Cold, underclothed, underfed, suffering in many ways as an elderly man in his 90s. But when he saw Christ, do you think any of that mattered? No. I mean, he fell at his feet like a dead man. He was slain. He was as dead. And not I'm not trying to make fun, but I just think it's a dramatic contrast to think about the experience that Benny Hinn described one time where he said he was shaving, getting ready in the morning in his bathroom, 
and that Jesus showed up and sat on his toilet. And then he got up and came over and put his arm around him and talked to him about the day he would have. And you know, of course, the thing that begs question there is, how do you keep shaving if Jesus shows up? You know? But anyway, now that's an extreme, and we all laugh about that, but as Mr. McCraney just alluded to, don't we all kind of want something from Jesus? Hey, you know, if you're bigger than Jesus, you can do that. Huh? If you're bigger than Jesus, you can be <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true. But, but, you know, aren't we all guilty of that oftentimes? My point is, and of all people, think of who this is that's experiencing this vision. This is John. This, there's no man on earth that was closer, had more intimacy with Christ when he was incarnate than John. He was the beloved disciple. He was the one that laid upon his breast. I mean, so if you were writing this, again, proof of inspiration, if you were writing this story, John saw the resurrected Christ, how would, like if you were doing a movie, how would you do it? You'd probably have them run, embrace each other, greet each other with a holy kiss and a holy hug. You know, that's not what happened. I mean, he was slain, struck. And isn't that similar to what we see in the Bible? Like in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel, um, and he's not even encountering the risen Christ in chapter 8. This is the first named angel, Gabriel. Gabriel shows up in chapter 8, verse 17 of Daniel. He says, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Then in chapter 10, he sees the pre-incarnate Christ. And in chapter 10, verse 5, he says, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. And then in verse 8, he says, I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor. And I retained no strength. But I heard the sounds of his words. As soon as I heard the sounds of sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. And then verse 10 says, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And I stood up trembling. Samson's parents, parents, not his parents, but his parents. Uh, Judges chapter 13 um, it says, verse 20, For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And then verse 22, he said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. Ezekiel. Ezekiel had many visions of God. And um, every time... Same result. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. When I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 23. I fell on my face. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 8. I fell on my face. Ezekiel 43, verse 3. I fell on my face. Ezekiel 44, verse 4. I fell on my face. So, Ezekiel must have been bruised up. I mean, every time God showed up, he fell on his face. Isaiah, powerful passage. One of Bruce's favorites, one of mine too. 
Isaiah chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. And after the threefold holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, then what? He said, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am rude, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Job chapter 42, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And we don't even know if that's a vision. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Paul wrote to Damascus, Acts chapter 26. The voice comes at about midday, light from heaven, brighter than the sun, all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, so there's a pattern here of when God shows up, people fall down, prostrate in worship. And it's not just the um, image of people who are righteous and holy and pure of heart that they may see God and live. Because, you know, only the righteous and pure in heart may see God and live. But think about the stark contrast to those who are wicked and unbelieving or unrighteous because of their unbelief. Ananias and Sapphira. Y'all know that story. Acts chapter 5. After they lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias first, verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Wasn't anything fun about that being slain. And verse 10, his wife comes in and immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church, over all who heard these things. Even in Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth, verse 15, kings of the earth, great men, commanders, rich, strong, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So, to summarize, if we encounter or experience the living God, it's a dramatic, overwhelming, powerful experience. It flattens us in prostate worship. And isn't that what Hebrews tells us in chapter 12? Is that since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, verse 28, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. The God we worship is not our buddy. The God we worship is not our co-pilot. The God we worship is not our friend. And now there is a sense in which Jesus calls us his friends. But he never says you're to call me friend. It's just a difference in respect and awe. So, comments on that. How should this change our worship? Like if, when we go into the worship hour, what are we going in there to do? To encounter the living God. 
to have a vision. Although not physical, but to have a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ in heaven interceding for us. So what should our response be? I mean, do you think our worship in general is proper for the God that we see? Anyway, I just think it's powerful for us to consider the response of these people who, you know, these are our heroes in the faith. And look at how they respond. But in addition to being slain, we're scared. Or in Ohachi we say, scared. I mean, there's a holy reverential fear of seeing God in this way. And that not only motivates us to prostrate worship, but that motivates us to be, obey His commands. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So we evangelize, we preach and live the gospel before others because we know the fear of the Lord. What's the next result we see? So he's slain and he's afraid. He's shaking in fear. So what's the next thing we see though? He's soothed or he's comforted He's calmed by the Lord Himself. I just think that's a tender, precious moment that the God of glory does not leave Him shaking. But as even we saw in the clip, He extends His right hand and touches Him. And this is not the first time John heard Christ say, Fear not, is it? All the way through his ministry, he was always telling the disciples to fear not. You know, like when they're on the Sea of Galilee in the storm and they see Christ coming to him, walking on the water, and they're frightened because they see a goat, they think they see a ghost. And what's Christ say? Fear not. Oh, he's always saying that. You know, it's like when in Luke chapter 8, when again they're on uh, on the lake in. Um, a storm is blowing, the winds are raging, the waves are crashing, and they're frightened. And then he speaks and calms the sea and stills the wind. And then what does it say about Peter's response? They tremble in fear because they realize it's more frightening to have the God of heaven in the boat with you than to be in the boat and in the storm. I mean, because when you realize this is God. So, and by the way, just in case some of you super observant types are thinking about this, what happened to the seven stars? Because he touches it with what? His right hand. A lot of people make a big deal out of what does that mean? Well, you know, he's God. They could, he could just turn them loose and they're hovering. I mean, I don't, you know, again, this is symbolic language. Is figurative, and he obviously doesn't have to put them down or do something with them to reach out and touch John and comfort him. All right, now we come to the real meat of this, though. What's 
the other consequences, the response, the side effects of the vision. He's strengthened. He's encouraged. He is greatly encouraged because Christ now identifies himself as the great I am. This is God. And it takes us back to um, thinking about how sovereignty, the sovereignty of God strengthens us in encouragement. When we see God, when we see Christ as God, we're strengthened, we're encouraged as we see Him as the great I Am. The divine attributes and nature of God in Christ is our greatest assurance and strength. Whatever strength or encouragement we can have, what greater strength or encouragement can we have than knowing that Jesus is fully God, that He is, that he is ours and we are His? Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us or who can be against us? Oh, here's five things, five titles for Jesus that ascribe to him full deity. And of course, the first one is the Greek phrase, egoami. And egoami just simply translates, I am. And we know that it was used of Christ many times in the scriptures. Christ used it of himself many times in the scriptures. John, the revelator in his gospel, had the seven great I am statements of Christ. And so all of these point to his deity, point to his divine nature. It's the uh, covenant name of God. It goes back to Moses on Sinai um, in Exodus 3. It's also, oh, by the way, this is a, a back to Genesis, since we hadn't been that long, only just a few years out of Genesis, that uh, Genesis 15 Genesis 15, the very first fear not in the Bible is right after the very first I am. And that's Genesis 15 verse 1 where after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and says, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield unto you. So, isn't it a beautiful picture that every time God declares His I amness, his covenant name, Yahweh, Jehovah, that it's coincidental with a fear not because we should be afraid. We should be very afraid. Secondly, is what? The expression the first and the last. This is a title for God in Old Testament also. Isaiah 41, 44, 48 says like, I the Lord am the first and with the last, I am He. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. This refers to God's self-existence. His eternality. He is before all things and He's after all things. Next is, in verse 18, the living one. This is from the root word that we get zoology from. is zoan, a form of zoe. And it, but it's not just life. Obviously, this is the source, the controller, the sustainer, the creator, the end of all life. So again, back to self-existence. The one who was dead and is now alive forevermore. And literally in the Greek, this is an important distinction. It says, I became dead. 
you know, sometimes we sing that God should die. And you know, R.C. Sproul has pointed out a couple times at conference I've been to, make sure we understand one thing. God cannot die. Christ died in His humanity. But God the Son did not die. If God, you know, you can't separate God the Son from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They're one. So if God were to die, what would happen? Everything would cease. There would be nothing. I mean, He controls and sustains all things. So He put on flesh and His flesh died. Christ died. Jesus, the man, died on the cross. That's why it says he became dead. Peter made this distinction, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And by the way, too, notice there is behold, a term of amazement and wonder. Second time, out of 25, the word behold is used in Revelation. Every time we see it, it's alerting us to an amazing, overwhelming truth that is to follow. In this case, beholding Jesus as God. And then fifth, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Amazing, comforting title for Christ. Keys indicate control, authority, that you can lock up or you can set free. And really, the terms are synonymous because death is the state or the condition and Hades or Hades is the place. So it's the state or condition and the location of, de of death. Death is separation from the body for all and from God for the lost. Um, Hades is New Testament equivalent of Sheol in Old Testament. It's divided between the bosom of Abraham, or as Jesus called it to the thief on the cross, paradise. That's the good part. The other part is hell. And um, that, well, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go out of order here because I'm going to wrap up with what I've got next here to discuss. So let's jump on down to get... Um, the other verses taken care of, and that's verse 19. Um, all right. Verse 19. What's the next side effect? Is scribe or write. All right. John is commanded to write down what he's seen. And notice that the the command is given in a threefold in three phrases and many see here a threefold summary and simple outline for the book number one the things which you have seen yep I've already got it up there alright the things which you have seen number two the things which are number three the things which will take place after these things well, again, many see a simple outline here where the things which you have seen are, that's the vision of chapter one we're talking about right now. 
Number two, the things which are. That's the current condition of the churches that are immediately addressed in chapters two and three, the seven churches. And then the things which shall take, which will take place after these things, that's the prophetic revelation of future events found in chapters 4 through 22. Um, and by the way, a variation of that is that the second uh, part is chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then the third part starts with chapter 6. In other words, the heavenly worship scene in chapters 4 and 5 could either be part of the things which are or part of the things which will take place afterwards. But i got to be fair and say many scholars disagree. And many see no outline at all here. Um, just interpreting this as simply a command to record all manner of things which are not necessarily in this order, but they're mixed up, that, that there's a combination of things which you have seen and things which are, and things which shall be, shall be or take place afterwards. So, and of course, that's more complementary to a preterist or past view, or to a historicist or present view of interpretation. And that ties usually back in to more of an amillennial position on the end times, or a postmillennial position on the end times. Um, the and some people, by the way, see this twofold outline where the first part is just commanding to write, and then the two things you write are the two things which you've seen are the things which you um, which are and the things which are about to take place. All right, you want me to get off the fence and tell you what I think? Well, I think that the Greek structure, the grammar here, is very crisp and clear. And I don't think I have a slide for this, but if it says literally, the literal interlinear is which things you saw, which things are, which things are about to take place after these. That's literal. The opening phrase, if you flip over chapter 4, verse 1, the very two first Greek words in chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, are exactly the same as the last two in this verse. It says, it's metatauta after these. So, I agree that it's a simple outline. I think, now bear in mind, it could be a more general outline, like you could say that it's um, the vision of Christ among his churches, the past that John saw, chapter 1, Two, the events of the present church age from the first century all the way till now. And number three, the events of the age to come, chapters 4 through 22 or chapter 6 through 22. But in summary, it just seems that God's grace and clarity of revelation, He's given, I think the most simple, literal approach is to see a simple outline. And again, to Skip to, um, well, first of all, is there a question about that? Because I don't mean to be confusing, but it's a little bit technical. And then, um, last, just to wrap up, verse 20 of the symbols. And we've already talked about that. The symbols being the lampstands for the churches and the stars for the angels. And this is a mystery. In other words, a truth. 
that was revealed, I mean that was concealed, but is now revealed. And by the way, point of application, the churches here are interconnected. They're very connected because Christ is among them in their midst and the plural is used in chapters 2 and 3 so they're all connected with each other. And notice that their connection is not in government or structure or polity. Their connection is in their core and their common source, their common controller, their master. And isn't that a truth that we all need to hear today that we as the church and the local churches are connected through Christ and only through Him. Only in Him do we find real purpose and meaning. Only in Christ are the churches unified and uh, connected in real purpose and worship and ministry. But I want us to go back to verse 18 because I just think this is very powerful and you may find it a little bit nerdy um, but it's exciting to look at verse 18 and the phrase the living one um, maybe a little bit different in your translation but this is in verse 18 at the very beginning it says verse in the 17 says I am the first and the last and the living one And a lot of this I got from um, um, a talk that I heard R.C. Sproul give at a Ligonier conference in Orlando. He talked about the basic questions of life being like, who are you? You know, and notice the verb there, who are you? Or how are you? And what's the basic declarative statement to answer that? I am fine. I am okay. All of that relates to the verb in the English language we call to be. And again, it's the most protean, um, uh, actually not pro, yeah, it's protean, that's the word. And I don't even know what that means except that the definition I read says it's the most changing or complex of all verbs. Like in the first person, you can say, I am being, I have been, I will be, I will be, I will have been, I was being, I had been, I will be being, I have been being, I have been being, and I will have been being. All those are different conjugations of the same verb to be. And that's just the first person. Um, you know, even Bill Clinton got tied up over what the definition of is is. So, Think about, we are called what? Human beings. Human beings. But, going back, what are orders of beings or things? First you got matter or things. Rocks, water, whatever you want to put there. Anything that's not living. And then you got plants, plant beings. I don't know if that's a term or not, but I'm, I'm calling them plant beings. Um, kind of like alien beings, I guess. And then you got animals, animal beings. Now, a lot of people really think animal beings are the supreme being, but they're not. They're about halfway up the chain. 
And then next are men, human beings. And then angels. Angels are greater beings than we are. You know, Psalm 8 explains that. They are greater beings than we are. Yet we are greater in dependence than they are in independence. And of course, God is the ultimate, supreme being. And that sounds like something like Star Wars, but it really is true. He is the supreme, ultimate being. But only God is really a being. Because a Greek philosopher named Parmenides in the 5th century B.C. wrote a view of reality called On Nature, and in it there was two things, the way of truth and the way of opinion. The way of opinion was one based on your perceptions or appearances, which could be faulty and deceitful. The way of truth explains reality as one, where change is impossible and existence is timeless. That's, in, in spite of what we think is hip today, when you hear people say what is, is, it started in the 5th century B.C. He is where that phrase came from. And it establishes the concept of being. Or we could say what we are what we are. Constancy. There is no change. The counterpart was a philosopher named Heraclitus. Same time, 5th century B.C. And he said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. What does that mean? You step in... <clears throat> That's one set of water. You take your foot out, you step in again, you're in another set of water. Why? Because the river is always flowing. Time is always moving. So, his constant, his only constant was change. So, we're all becoming. We are what we are becoming. And isn't that true? Now, I know this may be a brain strain going on here, or you just know I'm crazy. But, we're, I'm not the same person that I was when I started this sentence. Every second that ticks by, I'm changing because cells are being created. They're dividing and multiplying. Cells are dying and being removed. My weight is changing. As I stand here, my weight is going down. Not very fast, but infinitesimally, it's going down. In fact, my height is changing too. As I stand here, the effect of gravity is compressing my spine, and you are taller when you wake up than you are when you go to bed, as much as three-fourths of an inch. So, the point is, we're always changing. And isn't that true soulishly, not just physically? Like, you're always learning something, you're experiencing different things, things are changing in your life. We are changing. So therefore, we and animals and angels, and plants, and all things, like even a, even a rock, Stone Mountain is smaller than it used to be, right? It's wearing down. Are y'all laughing at my nerdiness? You have to tell me if you're laughing at me. <laughs> but everything's changing. So we are not really beings in the truest sense of the word, right? We are what? Becomings. We're becomings. And yet all becomings derive their existence from another. And if the other, like a becoming, might create another becoming, 
But ultimately, the primary becoming must be created by being. Follow me? I'm getting to the point of self-existence. All becomings are just being with potentiality. Only a true being is really something. We're really nothing without the something. And of course, God is the ultimate being. That's why only God could create ex nihilo. There was nothing but God, and God created something out of nothing. Only a being could do that. And I'm talking about this is from philosophy, a term called ontological. It's also logical. You know, how do you get something out of nothing if the something was created? I mean, I'm talking about if the nothing was created is what I meant to say. All right. We have existence only because God does. We are becoming because God is a being. What's all that take us back to? Ego, I am. am. That's the tense of the verb to be. God is am. God is. Only God is. We are not is. We might say it that way in the South, but we're not. We, we can't say that we is. So, but am I making any sense here, or have I got y'all totally confused? My point is that I'm trying to get to this. Jesus, when he said that I am, like in John 8, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, was I am, he took on full deity. He took on the full glory of God in speaking that, in declaring that. And he not only claimed equality with God the Father, he proved it. He is the second person of the divine being. Well, now back to Revelation. Already in Revelation verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8, we see the first I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And it says, the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Literally, in the Greek, that could be interpreted the being, the was, and the coming. The being, the was, and the coming. Now, flip over to verse 18, we're looking at now, the living one. Again, the root word is so on, not, not I me, but in context, with I am preceding it, I feel that it's not a leap to say this could be interpreted I am the first and the last, the being one. I mean, I just said that and gave me chill bones. Um, what a powerful word for who God is in Christ, for who Christ is as God. He is the being one, the ultimate consummate being. I don't know any greater 
praise that we could give to him than that. And uh, time's gone, so I'll shut up. But as we behold Christ as the first and the last and the being one, we should be changed. And since we are becoming, we're becoming something. So why not we become conformed to the image of Christ? That's our destiny. That's who we should be. As we see Him, we should become more like Him as we see Him as He is. And we, again, 2 Corinthians 3, we should be transformed into glory after glory. Any comments? Sure. So, when we say die, I guess in heaven we'll still be becoming. I think so, because we're still... We say that we're I am. Well, I think I can say with authority, I know so. Because only God is ultimately a being. So we have to be But But isn't that, isn't that powerful to think about? Yeah, I mean, I don't that, no, but for eternity, but for eternity we'll be becoming. We'll be changing and growing and becoming. So there's a lot of other, well, I mentioned Mormonism says you will be an I am. Yeah. I disagree. <laughs> I think the Word of God disagrees pretty clearly too. Alright, any comments? Alright. Yes, Rick Warren's highly endorsed 